On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Uh, pretty varied um, from pages today, as they often tend to be at this time of year. There aren't any single standout stories. Uh, we'll start with the Sunday Times today. Fine Gael has won the argument on tax reforms, according to Leo Varadkar. He says that he's not giving up his own proposal for a 30% rate uh, of looking for a new income tax rate in the budget. Uh, but the Fine Gael leader does say that he is happy for tax cuts to be achieved either by widening the bans or by creating that new middle rate, as long as it does something to reduce the burden on people whose wages are average or below average. He says in an interview with the Sunday Times today, I do think as a party anyway that we have won the argument on income tax. Two years ago when we were negotiating the programme for government, Fianna Fáil and the Greens didn't want a specific commitment in there on income tax cuts. It's not that they were against them, they just didn't think it was a priority, he says, but it was one of the reasons why we agreed to participate in government. And when we did reduce income tax last year in the budget, it was opposed by Sinn Féin, Labour and the Social Democrats. This year there is no argument anymore. Everyone accepts that middle income people deserve a tax break. It's just that the mechanism and the amount. Um, Leo Varadkar said the same thing at a media op in Monaghan this week and I went back and checked that afterwards and uh, Sinn Féin and Labour and the Social Democrats did not vote against tax cuts in last year's budget. They argued that they weren't targeted enough but they certainly did not oppose them uh, when they were going through at the time. Um, Also on the front page of the Sunday Times today a majority of voters in Northern Ireland supported joining a united Ireland either now or within the next 15 to 20 years according to the latest opinion poll by Lucid Talk. Uh, an attempt by a landlord to remove Paddy Cosgrave, the Web Summit CEO uh, from a Dublin house that he rents has failed after the RTB ruled that the founder of the Web Summit had not breached his obligations as a tenant. Uh, and staying with the RTB, uh, Robert Troy, the embattled junior minister, has admitted that one of his rental properties was not registered with the RTB. The Fianna Fáil TD has been under intense scrutiny over the past week after it was found that he had not included several properties in his Oireachtas Declaration of Interests. I'm sure we're talking more about that uh, in our deep dive into the papers in a little while. Uh, The front page of the Business Post today uh, three significant stories I think um, first one the government has launched a review into Ireland's electricity supply crisis with ministers said to be livid that the country is facing into a period of unprecedented power insecurity it comes as the energy regulator has written to large businesses warning that the supply the security of supply challenge has evolved materially quote and that it's introducing emergency tariffs in a bid to manage the deteriorating situation members of the government are understood to be astounded at the unfolding crisis with many senior government figures questioning the competency of the commission for regulation of utilities and AirGrid, the national grid operator. Our review has now been carried out by Dermot McCarthy, who was previously the country's top-ranking civil servant for 11 years between 2000 and 2011. That's due to be con- uh, con- concluded uh, by the end of this year. This is now being managed at the most senior levels of government, uh, says one source. Also on the front page of the Business Post, a dramatic decline in taxes paid by large investment property funds, which has prompted a review by the Revenue Commissioners. Uh, This is fascinating stuff. Institutional investors nearly doubled their profits in 2021, but the effective rate of tax they pay uh, through Irish real estate funds fell from nearly 18% to only just under 6%. Uh, In 2019, Pascal Donoghue said that some uh, IREFs, these are institutional investors, uh, some Irish real estate funds, IREFs, uh, some of them had managed to engage in aggressive behaviour to avoid tax, he said, which was why, as part of the budget three years ago, he put in place some measures to limit their ability to avoid tax. That resulted in uh, the tax last year, uh, paying that they paid... 36.8 million last year on a taxable amount of 621 but that's compared to uh, paying 65.7 million on 369 million in 2020 so effectively they have managed to uh, almost double their um, their taxable amounts um, but yet the tax they're paying is quite small so Pascal Donner who has uh, instigated an, uh, an, in- an inquiry into all of that 
And also the Business Post, uh, multinational tech firms in Ireland. We, we read last week that they were trying to uh, sublet some of their extensive property holdings in Dublin because they weren't going to be rec- recruiting as many people. And now, one step further, multinational tech firms are slowing recruitment and putting in place hiring freezes uh, due to global economic concerns. Third-party recruiters have reported less activity across early-stage startups and stock market-listed companies. Uh, the front page of the Mail on Sunday, murdered granny feared her suspect would kill her. Tragic grandmother uh, Miriam Burns, who of course was um, dominating the news after that, that awful murder in Killarney this week Um, the Mail on Sunday tells us today that she lived for years in fear that she would be killed by the chief suspect for her brutal murder Uh, it's also emerged that the suspect who was known to Miss Burns is in custody over district court offences and finally for now uh, the Sunday Independent lead story whose author is with us in studio uh, Leo Varadkar has said that Taoiseach Micheál Martin's refusal to rule out going into a coalition with Sinn Féin could help Fine Gael win a fourth term in government. It's written by Hugh O'Connell, who's the newly minted deputy political editor at Independent Newspapers. Hugh, congratulations uh, on your new title. Uh, explain to us a little more Leo Varadkar's rationale behind this. Thanks, Gavin. Yeah, th- this is remarks, I think, that were for a select audience of Fine Gael members in Cork Southwest. That, um, <laughs> not anymore. Well, not anymore, no. Um, but really, I think he was trying to make the point that, um, I mean, there's a couple of points he was making uh, in this um in this Q- lengthy Q and A with with Finnegale members in in Cork Southwest on Friday night, and you know he was arguing that Finnegale shouldn't be fatalistic about this idea that Sinn Fein uh, getting into government is inevitable, and that uh, you know the party should be gunning for a fourth term in office, um, which would be pretty historic, uh, and you mm-hmm. know perhaps might seem pretty unlikely based on current polls. But I mean he was making the point that Finnegale and Fianna Fáil's vote combined, if you look at most polls, is is ahead of of Sinn Fein's. Um, whether that's the case or not, you know, we'll, we'll see. Um, but um, he was saying that effectively in the election campaign, the fact that Fine Gael is so adamant that it will not go into government with Sinn Féin uh, versus uh, Micheál Martin softening his position on Fianna Fáil going into government with Sinn Féin. I mean, if you look at a succession of interviews that Micheál Martin has done over mm. the last uh, kind of eight months, kind of going back to December of last year when he did a roundtable with political correspondents and he, he did not rule out the possibility that mm. Fianna Fáil could, could do a deal with Sinn Féin after the next election. Although, you know, heavily caveated that by saying yeah. there are substantial policy differences. He has a problem with their past, with their policies on the North, with their economic policies, with what he sees as their anti-enterprise policies. But Michal Martin, or sorry, Leo Varadkar is saying that you know voters who uh, do not like the prospect of Sinn Féin getting into government might be more comfortable giving their vote to Fine Gael uh, because they know that they won't facilitate Fine Gael, or Sinn Féin rather, getting into government, whereas Fianna Fáil might do so. So, so it is that, that that's the sort of the, the the point of difference that if you have two parties that are running yeah. into a, a general election and they are somewhat competing against each other after five years of coalition, that the point of difference is and four years of confidence and supply. Yes, <laughs> uh, so the point of difference is is who you're prepared to govern with. Again. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, that it's an interesting point. And as I said, it's it's more a point, I think, that would be of interest to, to Fine Gael voters. But w- what it does make for, I suppose, and bear in mind that the two men are appearing today at Bell Nablaw at the centenary commemoration mm-hmm. of Michael Collins' assassination, and, and they'll be talking to the media later on today, is, you know, Leo Radcliffe kind of basically saying that Micheál Martin is, is soft on Sinn Féin. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, you yeah. could... You could you could deduce that from those remarks, uh, which obviously, as I said, were not intended yeah. for a, an audience uh, greater than the, the audience in that room in Dunmanway on it's, Friday night. It's interesting enough, while it was a Fine Gael audience, yes. uh, he does appear to be also speaking to some Fianna Fáil supporters because he's saying, by us... Mm. Your party is soft on Sinn Féin. Uh, yeah, yeah, and by us flat out refusing to do any sort of a deal with Sinn Féin, we might actually get those Fianna Fáilers 
who are also mm-hmm. vehemently opposed I mean, bear to going in mind into power with Sinn Féin. There are people, TDs like Willie O'Dea, for example, in Fianna Fáil, who are absolutely opposed to the party doing business with Sinn Féin. Mm. And, mm. you know, I think perhaps, I'm not sure if Willie O'Dea has said this, but certainly there are some TDs who have said to me in the past, like, I would have no truck with my party going into government with Sinn Féin. I think there were uh, some in the past as well who uh, also said they would have no truck with their party going into coalition well, with Sinn Féin. Well. Here's where yeah. we are. Uh, that was the voice Surely of Elaine Lachlan. I hadn't introduced <laughs> her yet. That's Elaine Lachlan, who's the deputy political editor at the Irish Examiner, who's also with us for, for going through our Sunday papers today. Um, just before we go any further on, actually, we have a little clip of Micheál Martin discussing this prospect of prospective coalition with Sinn Féin and whether he would ever rule them out. This was at a roundtable interview that he gave to print journalists when he was on his trip to Asia last month when he was visiting Japan and Singapore. Um, he does proceed what he's about to say with uh, complaints about Sinn Féin's outlook on enterprise, believing that Sinn Féin and power would be bad for foreign direct investment and also outlining that he finds it very difficult to understand Sinn Féin's approach to Northern Ireland and its sympathy for the campaign of the IRA. But this is what he had to say about whether that would be a red line for going into coalition with them. But I'm, I'm not saying it's an issue that becomes a breaking point into the future, but I would have thought it's a legitimate political issue of the day because in many ways this idea of the gun being the answer to everything poisoned previous generations of Irish people that led to what happened. We shouldn't poison a new generation again in the notion that violence can be worked at or violence is justified. That's all I'm saying. It, it, it doesn't become a barrier potentially, but it's something that they need to deal with in my view. So a disagreement, he says, between his outlook and the outlook of Sinn Féin, but not necessarily something that would make a government a complete non-runner. Uh, I thought it was just worthy of, of playing that so that people can judge for themselves how, inverted commas, soft Micheál Martin might be on Sinn Féin. Uh, although, um, Elaine Lachlan, I, I, I'm not sure whether, uh, is this an instance of, of political parties just repeating the failed campaigns of previous? Because a lot of the last general election was marked by Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael and something of a competition saying, no, I won't go into, mm. I won't go in with Sinn Féin. No, I won't go in with Sinn Féin. And it ended up just othering Sinn Féin to the point where they genuinely seemed like a prospective new broom and it did them wonders when it came to actual voting day. And I sort of wonder, is there really an awful lot of merit into this idea of once again portraying Sinn Féin as baddies and saying, we won't go in with them, when actually you're just ruling yourself out of coalition with a party that's far more popular than you. Mm-hmm. And it does speak to this kind of identity crisis that both the two main parties have at the moment. Um, as, as Hugh said, they've been in power essentially to together since the the confidence and supply agreement and now actually in government together and it it go back goes back to we had that secretive not so secretive meeting of Fianna Fáil backbenchers before the summer recess where they were saying that the party to differentiate themselves from Fine Gael going into the next general election will need to come up with policies that are outside the programme for government mm. so they can go to the electorate and say this is what makes us different from Fine Gael. and it seems that Fine Gael or certainly Lee Varadkar is taking a different approach where he's not perhaps looking at policy but looking at who would they go into government with as a mm. way of of setting out a different stall for voters but certainly both of the two main political parties are very aware of the fact that the general public almost sees them as one and the same now and they do need to uh, perhaps find some sort of space that is different between mm. them when they go into that election. One thing I'm conscious about, Hugh, is that this was the, these were remarks that were made to uh, what was supposed to have been a private audience of, of Fine Gael members. So naturally, they're going to have a certain outlook. But, but it does kind of result in the idea of 
well, we're going to rule ourselves out of coalition with Sinn Féin, which, which does sort of then leave you with very few other options if the polls do end up being replicated at a general election, if Sinn Féin is by far the most popular party and then you've ruled yourself out of having any role in coalition. You, you could almost argue that you could be in there to keep manners on them, but Leo Varadkar's ruling that out already. Yeah, I mean, his logic seems to be that, um, you know, Fine Gael can benefit from from this uh, opposition to Sinn Féin, can increase their vote to maybe 20, 25, or sorry, 24, 25 percent, uh, that they can benefit, for example, from, and he, he said this as well, benefiting from, from transfers from um, the, the other coalition parties, Fianna Fáil and the Green Party, uh, and that that can push up the Fine Gael's number of seats so that it can become the lead party of the kind of progressive centre um and, and lead the next government. But then who does it go into government with? Well, definitely not Sinn Féin. Would it go into f- government with Fianna Fáil again? Would Fianna Fáil be prepared to go in as the junior coalition partner in, in, in a such government? Um, so, you know, all of that, I, I suppose, presents further questions um, as to how realistic uh, Leo Radker's line of thinking on this is. Mm. Um, but then again, the election is is probably two to two and a half years away. So, um We'll have to wait and see how it all pans out, but certainly, like this is, you know, this this is food for thought, I suppose, and yeah. it's going to be interesting to see how the two men react to these uh, these remarks. Yeah, later on it's today. also particularly interesting, given the fact he's saying to to members please don't rule out a fourth term in government mm. when if you think back to the third term yeah. a lot yeah. of Fine Gael members were very reluctant to even do a third term they yeah. thought we should be back in, in opposition I mean, I, yeah, and point. even after the general election wasn't Leo Varadkar publicly taking mm-hmm. that stance as well listen yeah. we've been defeated we've lost seats and it's up to up someone else to form a government now yeah. I, I think a lot of people in Fine, like you know, he, he, was, he, said, he described it as a terrible attitude for people to have that Fine Gael shouldn't be going into the next election looking to try and win and to try and win a, a fourth term in government whereas in reality I think there's an awful lot of, of Radcliffe's colleagues who really would prefer uh, if the party did go into opposition mm-hmm. after the next election, let Sinn Féin uh, govern and see how all that pans out. And indeed, you know, Varadkar was talking at length again, once more about how bad Sinn Féin would be mm. for the country or how bad mm. he thinks Sinn Féin would yeah. be for the country. Um, and, you know, he thinks that in two or three years the, the country would yeah. be in a very bad place and his colleagues in Fine Gael would see that that would be the perfect opportunity for, yeah. for Fine Gael to gain ground. But uh, I suspect you probably hear spots and maybe I suspect you probably hear much more about uh, how apparently ruinous Sinn Féin would be uh, in the speeches of Bail and the Law today, given that it is, of course, the leaders of the two other parties that are so vociferously opposed uh, to Sinn Féin. Uh, in the meantime, there is a lot in today's papers as well about the current relationship between those two parties because they've still got another two and a half years of coalition together. Um, I see in the Business Post, um, Elaine, that there are some tensions apparently between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil over who's going to get the finance portfolio after the reshuffle. In December. Yeah, and this comes down to another uh, gig outside this country. That's um, President of the Eurogroup, Pascal Don, who currently holds that position. Um, and they're talking about if he was to go forward for re-election, he would need to be finance minister. So Fine Gael are now pushing, a par- or some sources certainly, uh, within the party are saying that they want to retain that position. Now, it had been kind of a, a given or a, an anticipated given that that position would swap and that perhaps Michael McGrath and Pascal Donoghue would do a direct swap over so Mm. uh, retaining a financial portfolio but not the finance ministry that seems to be under question now I would be very surprised if Fianna Fáil would let that happen Um, I I don't see that happening from the Fianna Fáil point I I would think it being pretty intolerable that you'd have the same party holding the office of Taoiseach and the office of finance minister even if finance has been sort of split into two sort of almost equal halves the the idea they would just seem like it was almost too much influence for one party to have in what's supposed to be a coalition of equals Mm -hmm. and I suppose as well going into a general election Fianna Fáil would like to have had a go at, 
at the finance ministry as well. So mm. they could point to various measures that they introduced under their leadership or their minister. Yeah. I interviewed Michael McGrath last year and it was certainly his expectation that he, that Fianna Fáil would take over the finance ministry. I think he probably, like mm. if it was him to do it, but nonetheless his expectation um, and he was quite clear about this was that Fianna Fáil would get the, the finance ministry mm. for exactly the yeah. reason that, that um, Elaine outlines. The the Eurogroup chair position does complicate matters, but as far as I understand it, there's nothing in the Lisbon, and I haven't read the Lisbon Treaty in full, but I'm told <laughs> that, <laughs> I know, uh, there's nothing that precludes a, a economic minister from okay. holding the position of chair of the Eurogroup. And so uh, public expenditure would seem mm-hmm. to me to be a... a so you could have strength. Pascal Donoghue prospectively serving as president of Eurogroup while Michael McGrath mm. was also in attendance as well? So there would be two Irish representatives on the... Mm-hmm. Okay. Potentially. Um, is there it, 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 is it a bit weird though that you'd, you'd have this complication about who gets this nice kind of European bell and whistler this kind of nice cushy European role that that would actually be an influence on the domestic running of things because like, the presidency of the Eurogroup is a pretty significant position mm. it doesn't matter a huge jot to a lot of people domestically and the idea that that would be a complication in the rotation of jobs or the orderly running of a coalition at home might seem like it might seem almost distasteful to some people yeah, I, I think so. Like, I don't anticipate like that. This would be this will be a problem come December. I think there'll be problems in other ministries potentially, um, or other other ministers being dropped or promoted, and, and people feeling sore about that. But I, I don't think. I mean, like, bear in mind, like Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath probably have the strongest working relationship of uh, of any of the the kind of coalition ministers, yeah. um, and and have. I mean, we talked about confidence supply earlier. That goes right back through confidence and supply uh, back to twenty sixteen. So. Like, I don't anticipate that this is going to be a big problem come December. Um, there's also some speculation today, I think, Hugh, I'll get you your take on this in the Mail on Sunday, where uh, the political editor, John Lee, is is outlining something of a theory. I don't know how widely this is shared in Leinster House, but that's because I've been on leave for a lot of the last month. Um, that there are some in Leinster House who see Micheál Martin as a contender for the presidency of the European Council. Yeah. And that might be a way uh, a way for him to serve out most of a term as Taunashe without having to lead Fianna Fáil into the next general election, because that's a job that would come up in autumn of 2024 yeah I mean like look Micheál Martin and like this goes you know when Andy Kenny was Taoiseach he was constantly being linked to European jobs as a way Mm. to to get him out of Ireland (laughs) 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 Um, so it's kind of the same thing here Uh, certainly it's a a nice orderly way of creating a a vacancy for party leader without someone having to knife him it is something Mm. that that a lot you know people around Leinster House have have discussed um, you know a a little bit over the last um, look since since there's always I mean there's always been a debate about Micheál Martin's future in Leinster House even if, if he would prefer that there isn't and, and he would dismiss all of that. Mm. Um, you know, equally, if he gets to pick the ex-European commissioner in 2024, so could that be Micheál Martin's gig potentially? Um, but yeah, president of the European Council. Just, I think this is more about, you know, are there ways in which we can facilitate an orderly transition of Micheál Martin out of Dublin <laughs> uh, than, you know, yeah. the sort of whether he's qualified for the job or not. But yeah. certainly, like John Lee's piece, is, it's a good piece. It goes into detail about you know how he's 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 well regarded by his colleagues on the council. He seems mm. to be centrally involved in drafting mm. um, texts that they agree at, at the European Council meetings. So he's well got there, yeah. uh, as as was Enda Kenny back in back in his day. Um, so I, I suspect this this speculation will continue the, for the, the next year or two. The only thing about these speculations of European jobs, Elaine, is that I always wonder: uh, Are we unique in Europe that we always 
speculate that our leaders could end up getting some big European job because there's always speculation that Leo mm-hmm. Varadkar could go off to the European Commission that Pascal Donahue could go off to the European Central Bank or something there that he's got the Eurogroup because it could be something of a stepping stone we're forever speculating whether our lads are good enough for big European roles Marie McGuinness could be the next president of the commission apparently so we always have mm-hmm. the speculation but there's only so many jobs to go around and if every other country is also speculating about whether their grandees are good enough for European jobs then suddenly you have a very crowded market for very few roles Yeah but we have had a very good history in Europe of of obtaining some of these big jobs so I suppose maybe that's why we uh, are ambitious when Mm. it comes to uh, posts in Europe but I think the piece as well that we're speaking about in the Mail on Sunday it has one uh, element to it that could be slightly controversial or or a bit of a sticking point and that would require Michal Martin to go into the Department of Foreign Affairs and we're going back to the reshuffle here at Christmas time Two points in relation to that, that would mean the ousting of Simon Coveney, um, who has been doing very well in foreign affairs and is well got in Europe. Mm. Uh, but has w- been there a long time. Has been there a long time, yes. Would Simon Coveney want to leave? Where would he go? And also, if you have the leader of a party in the portfolio of foreign affairs, it means he's out of the country mm. on a regular basis. And we know, especially when you look back to the Labour Party, uh, what happened there when the leader was in uh, the position of foreign affairs mm-hmm. uh, minister that, you know, mice often play when the cat's away. And that's exactly what could happen. And if you had maybe people looking at the future of Fianna Fáil and the leadership of Fianna Fáil and suddenly Hall Martin is on the other end at, or in the other end of the world mm. for a protracted length of time could you see a heave could you see moves um, yeah. there within Fianna Fáil so it mightn't if he does want to go into the uh, the next general election as leader I don't know if it would be the wisest move um, the Department right. of Fire Education and also just a direct swap with Leo Varadkar Interenterprise uh, Interenterprise yeah. has also been mentioned so uh, perhaps they might be slightly Yeah the argument about higher education being that the department only really exists because Michal Martin wanted that split in the first place and he was arguing for its creation the thing about foreign affairs is that he's been in that role previously and he, 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 might, he might want something a bit different of course he was in that role at the time that he challenged Brian Cowan's leadership of um, Fianna Fáil towards the end of 2010 and that didn't necessarily uh, it went his way I suppose in the long run um, almost to prove the point about the speculation about big European jobs someone has texted in to say Pascal is off to Europe along with mm-hmm. Martin and Leo don't forget uh, and Joe says the arrogance of Leo Leo could lose his seat he only got elected on the fifth count and Michal Martin on the sixth count Leo wake up he says um, which I, I know is something which is often said about the current um, coalition leaders that, that Leo Varadkar needed until the fifth count to get elected in Dublin West and Michal Martin on the sixth Um Sometimes I wonder whether those people understand the the nuances of our electoral system. All that means really is that they didn't top the poll. And indeed, it is possible to top the poll in an Irish general election and to still only get elected on the fifth or sixth count. We have multi-seat constituencies for a reason. And and previously, when Sinn Féin candidates were only getting elected on the fifth, sixth and seventh and eighth and ninth counts, nobody questioned their their legitimacy. They were all uh, ultimately elected. Um, We haven't even got to start talking about the budget. So why don't we take a commercial break now and we'll come back talking about some of the hard decisions ahead in the budget when we're back with Hugh and Elaine after this. Uh, to rifle through uh, not alone the Sunday papers but an awful lot of budget speculation uh, that's in today's Sunday papers and you I'm going to get you to take the lead on this again because you've written pretty extensively today in the Sunday Independent about some of the budget battles that are going on behind the scenes and once again you get the impression that there are an awful lot of priorities maybe priority is a is a key word there but there's an awful lot of boxes that have to be ticked and lots of different causes that need to be addressed and not necessarily enough money going around to address all of it 
Yeah, um, like I, I think that the last few weeks have obviously been you've seen a flurry of um, of stories across the newspapers um, of things that are are being considered in the context of the budget, and obviously that that kind of um, those kind of stories have appeared a little earlier um, in the year than, mm. than usual because the budget has been brought forward two weeks. And People lamenting the loss of some of their summer breaks. Yes, indeed. Um, but you know, I, th- I think the reality is at this point that you know there hasn't been a huge amount of activity in government buildings around the budget. You know, the ministers will be asked to get their their budget asks into the Department of Public Expenditure next week. Then there'll be officials uh, meeting and, and combing through the asks, and officials being sent back and said, "No, we're, well, we can't do that. We can't do that." And then there'll be ministerial bilaterals in in early September. And that will then kind of gear up towards uh, finalising the package to be announced on September 27th. But, you know, I thought what was interesting this week was that uh, Michael McGrath, the public expenditure minister, went out on, on um, Ortiz News at 1 on mm. Thursday to basically dampen expectations a little bit and just re- react, I suppose, to the the flurry of, of suggestions and commentary. Um, you know, it's not just the media, you know, it's, it's yeah. ministers have been engaging in this in... in, yeah. in uh, well, in Heather, great number Heather over Humphrey's the last line about needing to be an octopus to hold in all yeah, the cards that have been thrown um, in her department alone was pretty telling, wasn't it? It was, it was. Um, so, you know, I think that, that there's, you know, even Simon Harris, the education, higher education minister this week, talking about the budget package being uh, one for students and parents that would have an impact this year as well as next year. So, um, you know, there seems to be now that, uh, uh, you know, obviously we, we know about this kind of two-pronged approach where we have the budget package of 6.7 million, nearly half of that already pre-committed. And then we have this cost of living package, which is uh, estimated now to go over a billion euro, possibly as high as 2 billion euro. And that will have things like a double welfare payment, a, a double child benefit payment, electricity grant, uh, you know, uh, the the expect or the, the the feeling now is that you know one thing that could be done is is um, bringing forward the cut in childcare fees that, so that it takes effect in October and November, possibly uh, a reduction in student fees that would have an impact for students this year. So all of these things are building up huge expectation among the public. Mm. And the government will be uh, very heavily yeah. criticised if they disappoint. Well, this way it was pretty telling because you've reproduced the opening Q&A between Brian Dobson and, and Michael McGrath, that interview on Thursday. Brian Dobson says, if, if we put all these pieces of speculation together, can the budget measures that have been floated be delivered with the money that's available? To which Michael McGrath goes, I think the honest answer to that is no, Brian. The truth is that decisions haven't been made yet. Which means, Elaine, that there's an awful lot of plates to spin and a lot of expectations to be managed between now and budget day in five weeks. Mm-hmm. And there's also a very large elephant in the room and that's the yet to be decided public sector pay deal um, which we haven't really been focusing on as of yet and you know negotiations will continue and it's hoped that they will be able to be hammered out before Michael McGrath um, finalises his budget because that will have a massive impact on the yeah, money available, the available that's next yeah. next year and into the coming years. So, you know, while it's easy to give, as Hugh has outlined, some of these double payments or, or once-off payments in this um, cost of living package, we will have uh, an ongoing bill when it comes to the public sector pay deal that is being yeah. negotiated right now. Is it actually plausible, open question to either of you, is it possible to, to draw up a budget if you don't know in five weeks' time what the public sector pay bill is going to be? Because right now, this, this has all been framed as if they are renegotiating the current public sector pay deal anyway, but I think that's due to expire, if not at the end of this year, 
early in 2023 anyway. So they're going to need to be revising it one way or another. It doesn't seem to me to be tenable to be drawing up a budget if you don't know how much public sector pay is actually going to be next year and beyond. Mm -hmm. And perhaps if you leave a certain amount aside in anticipation of a public sector pay deal being agreed after the budget, are you showing your hand and Mm. and telling the unions, well, this is the amount we'll have for next year to pay you. Um, So it's a a difficult situation and and one maybe that will come more to the fore in the coming weeks. Mm. Um, I thought, Hugh, that uh, Leo Varadkar in some of his comments earlier this week was basically trying to do his best as to not sort of concede defeat but also throwing in the towel or dampening down expectations about the 30% tax rate that he's been agitating for maybe that is one of those points of difference that he'll have in the next general election if it doesn't get delivered in the meantime but you'd have thought that when even Pascal Donoghue is casting some doubt about the bureaucracy and having that done in time that Leo Varadkar was quietly giving in on 30% tax but apparently not no, um, so again, this goes back to his comments to the, his uh, Fine Gael audience on Friday night. He was quite uh, clear that it was something he would continue to push for. And he talked about, you know, the fact that there are uh, very few other countries, um, you know, America, even Northern Ireland, for example, where um, people pay the higher rate at such a low income level. So he's he's definitely still pursuing it. He's definitely pushing it. I mean, he says the, the, the big con of the idea is... Um, the fact that it would take several months to implement, so you might not see it taking effect until April or May of next year. But I mean, he pointed out that you know there's lots of changes that we that the government habitually makes in the budget that don't take effect until the middle of the following year. Mm. So, but a, um, but a change to like tax or to tax rates and to like a fundamental yeah. altering of the tax system like that is very difficult. Like it, it's tricky enough to do, and if it takes six months to do the bureaucracy and to create all the the systems behind it, then fair enough. But it's going to make filing tax returns for like the 2023. An absolute nightmare if a new tax rate kicks in halfway along the year. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, this is obviously one of the disincentives to to introducing it, but he's arguing that it's a structural change that would, you know, be embedded within the tax system um, forevermore mm. or until another government decides to change it uh, and that you could then uh, adjust it in the years in the years that follow. And, you know, he's interviewed as well by Stephen O'Brien in the Sunday Times and he signals that he's still pushing for it too. I mean, if I was a betting man, I would say that um, it's, it's unlikely that this is going to be mm. uh, announced in the budget but perhaps it you know there might be some soft language around uh, you know we'll consider it further in mm. the context of a further review of, of taxation policy going forward if, if it doesn't happen though Elaine I, I would also suspect that it's not likely to happen just because th- there's going to be too many other priorities and um, especially if, if public sector pay hasn't been nailed down by then the idea of setting aside money for a new tax cut or a new tax rate I, I don't know whether it's sort of plausible but that Leo Varadkar risks an unusual problem of his making himself a hostage to fortune by talking too much about something that he can't deliver mm-hmm. but it's something that he has been speaking about although continuously in the past few months for years, mm. effectively, it's been a thing that's raised by Fine Gael ministers almost annually as, as something they'd like to see done and never is mm. actually, never happens. Um, and I think since Leo Varadkar has been speaking about it in recent months, we've had a whole list of reasons as to why it cannot be implemented um, coming from both Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael ministers. And the most recent one I think Sean Fleming mentioned this week was the impact it would have on pensions. Mm. Um, so currently, if you're paying the 40% rate, um, you are obviously contributing more than if you go down to the 30% rate. And we we know that the, the pensions issue is a ticking time bomb. So that also would have to be factored into a new mm. rate of tax. Fine Gael has a very bad record when it comes to promising tax changes, abolishing no, the abolish USC. USC. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I seem to remember an Ordash speech by Varadkar three or four years ago, uh, possibly longer than that, where he said they would raise the entry point to 50,000 euro for the higher rate. That, that still hasn't happened. 
Um, they've made progress on that for sure, but you know, the, Fine Gael has a, has a bad track record in recent years of, of promises in terms of cutting taxes. And polls would appear to indicate that voters are more interested in services than tax cuts. But uh, which then kind of goes back to one of the other major issues with the idea of a thirty percent tax rate, which is that it would cost too much to introduce. I'm trying to find the exact figure here in the, the most recent tax strategy papers, but they were talking about if you allowed five thousand euro of your income to be taxed at uh, this new thirty percent rate instead of forty, that it would cost five hundred and twenty-five million to the government in foregone revenue, which is about half of all the tax uh, space that they've got in the mm, next budget. So yeah. you'd be giving up half of it immediately, which means you've got very little space then to do to take care yeah. of renters and landlords as they want to do and to tidy up other bits and pieces and mm-hmm. to allow for a raise in the minimum wage and the other um, tax knock-on effects that that all has. It's a huge amount of money to go on one thing. Yeah, it is. And, um, you know, I think that, that those papers say, and you know, that, that, um, that the 30% rate would benefit a million taxpayers. But if you index link tax bonds, um, it would benefit 2 million taxpayers. So mm. it's about, I suppose, using um, the, the, the limited resources to, to spread, the, um, spread the love as much as mm. possible. It does, though, go back to, and I think the, the Sunday Times piece, Fine Gael has won the argument on tax reform. I think it does go back to the fact that Fine Gael, even if they don't uh, perhaps get all the measures that... Uh, Leo Varadkar and others in his party are floating mm. at the moment. They are winning the narrative around the budget, whether it's tax. We're all talking about tax now in mm. Finnegal does uh, prioritise tax and, and sees tax as a major uh, thing that it wants to to change. But also you had Leo Varadkar coming out as well first on the childcare issue, which isn't even uh, under his party's control yeah. it's a green yeah. party minister that's in the the department of children so on all of these areas uh finagail come budget time may be able to point back to members of their party as being the ones who floated yeah. this first even if finafall or the Greens mm. were the ones who were actually implementing it. Uh, before we come off the budget, uh, what is the, the latest about this speculation about the €15 euro weekly rate, which was what was floated in those tax strategy group papers, apparently now being dialed back? Again, one of the concerns about that was that it would cost something in the region of, I think, €1 billion euro to, to raise weekly welfare payments by €15. Euro, and the concern was that that was too much money, again, to spend on one measure. But at the same time, €15 euro on weekly payments in the course of annual inflation of 8 or 9 or 10% doesn't seem like it, it wouldn't even be keeping pace. So is it another like political hot potato, Hugh, if the government finds itself not increase, increasing welfare rates by far less than people know they need to stand still? Yeah, well, I mean, you can never do enough, I think, for, from the government's point of view, um, because, you know, we've had we've had the, the suggestion of 50 euro increases. Obviously, Sinn Féin are saying they would do that over mm. a number of budgets. Um, so, you know, when those kind of figures are being thrown around and then you have the 15 euro coming out, uh, via the tax strategy group papers, which, you know, as I say in my piece today, is is something that's annoyed officials in deeper because it's a figure that's come from social protection by way of an example. Mm. But but if, they, is, but if they're is, putting it the forward kind of, by way of an example, though, it's an example that they want to have fleshed out because it, it, you can well, exactly, sort of read from yeah. that that it was something and of a priority. What happens? This happens every year with the tax strategy group papers because they are options papers. But nonetheless, when when figures like this emerge, they are considered kind of realistic options mm. for the government. Mm-hmm. And I think the expectation has been dialed back by senior people in government over the last few days that you know we can't really do the 15 euro when we consider that we only have a limited amount to spend this would cost 1.1 billion do we want to be putting 15 euro on job seekers allowance which is 
something that Fine Gael people have been speaking to, questioning whether that's the right thing to do. Is there do. any real substance to that concern, though? The, the, when we effectively that it would have act full, as a disincentive Yeah, can to we work. effectively have full employment anyway, and, and it would be less than these, keeping rate with inflation? These are, these are the concerns that, that they have. Um, whether, they're, whether they're relevant or not, they are concerns, mm. and they are involved in, in working out the budgetary, uh, the budgetary package. So... Um, you know, it seems to me now that it's more likely that you would have ten euro increases, and then you would um, increase more targeted payments by a little bit more than that. Um, but look, all of this has to be discussed and mm. decided. I, I do think like there's, there's no decisions made at this point. I mean, that's a cliche, but that is the yeah. case. And the real hard nosed discussions have yet to begin, but they will begin in the in the coming yeah, weeks. It's going to be a frantic enough five weeks because the budget is now thirty seven days away. And no doubt we'll be spending much more time talking about it in Sundays to come, which is why we're going to draw a line under that now and take a break. After which we're going to be talking about Robert Troy and some of the failings in our laws and ethics. Um, A story in the front page of the Sunday Times tells us today that Robert Troy, the embattled junior minister, has admitted that one of his rental properties was not registered with the Residential Tenancies Board. The Fianna Fáil TD has been under intense scrutiny over the past week after it was found that he had not included several properties in his Oireachtas Declaration of Interests. Troy had been asked whether the flat above the Ballinacargi Post Office in County Westmeath, which used to be his his full private uh, principal residence, which has been rented out since November, was registered with the RTB. Last night he admitted it had not been. In a statement, he said, In light of a recent focus on my property interest over the last fortnight, I conducted a thorough review of all interests. I requested both letting agents responsible for my properties in Mullingar and Dublin to confirm that all properties were up to date with the RTB and I can confirm that they are now all up to date. However, my agent informed me the Ballon the Carragy had not been fully registered. I apologised and addressed the anomaly immediately and paid the late fee of €90. Euro. Um, he says that he has now been able to supply a registration number for the PRTB for that property, um, but nonetheless is admitting that for some some time uh, his own status as a landlord was not fully in compliance uh, with the regulatory um, requirements. Um, Elaine Lachlan, that, it just seems like that should be in terms of sanction, a far bigger deal than it is. The idea that you pay, oh, 90 euro late fee, mm-hmm. but also that, you know, failing to having disclosed that before now on his register of members' interests, that the penalty for not disclosing it is that you go back and disclose it and bring it back to the way it should have been. It just seems like a massive gaping hole in our ethics laws. It does, and it was something, obviously he's confirmed now to the Sunday Times that he, that uh, apartment was not registered as something that my colleague Keenan Brennan was also reporting on on mm. Saturday um, but it, it does seem like it goes back to the penalties around all of these um, shall we say faux pas mistakes errors that yeah. Robert Troy made and the fact that Sippo really doesn't have any teeth when it comes to um, members of the Oireachtas who do make um Perhaps not yeah. full declarations um, in their annual in their annual declarations, and this is another thing of you know a ninety euro late fee. How late could a could a late declaration be as well? Yeah. You, could you have it years late and you still only pay ninety mm. euro? Um, but certainly, I think there will be pressure um, from members of the opposition to increase the powers that Sipo has. Mm. Um, Will Turkeys vote for Christmas though and it would be up to the um, uh, those in Leinster House to give yeah, SIPO more to, powers. To, to create more, more exactly. rules to which they themselves are subject. Uh, it is worth noting on that note um, that SIPO have been uh, arguing for years that there needs to be more powers for them to be able to follow up things like this, that there mm-hmm. need to be higher sanctions and also that they need to be, in, to be able to investigate all of this without somebody making a complaint to them first. So for example, Paul Murphy, the, the people for Profit TD has made complaints now about Robert Troy and um, they were unable to investigate the Robert the Robert Troy 
instance until a complaint was brought to their door because they don't have the power to investigate all of that out of scratch. Um, you uh, put, put it to you as well. Is there a real turkey's voting for Christmas thing here that I know the government has initiated a review of ethics laws, but that there is, you are still expecting politicians to vote to place themselves under greater scrutiny, which is something they're not generally wild, wild about doing. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's certainly, it's a legislative reform, I think, that whenever it sort of reaches, a, I mean, I think that Brent, when Brendan Howland was public expenditure minister, he might have drafted up legislation that got to a certain point and then fell when the, when yes, the door fell. Yeah. In, in 2016 and I think that's indicative of, of, of a political um, system that as you say you know it's Turkey's voting for Christmas there, there isn't a great desire to push these kind of things through there's always talk about it when scandals emerge mm-hmm. I mean you know, there's just as a plethora of them over the last few years. You know, ministers. Um, you know, I think about Michael Darcy resigning um, as a as a as a senator. Yeah. To take up a lobbying position, uh, and then being told he couldn't take up the position, and and you know, Sipo having no kind of knowledge or or insight mm. into this. Dara Murphy. But the, but but also in that Finnegal instance, then, TD, Sip, Sipo pointing out that in that instance, if Michael Darcy were to breach his cooling off period and to engage in lobbying anyway that they would have absolutely no powers of sanction. That yes. like he's expected to observe a cooling yeah. off. But if, if if it turned out they didn't, there's nothing to suggest that he didn't. Mm. But if he was decided to, to break that twelve months, yeah. nothing anyone can do about so it. So I, I and I think Michael McGrath did bring forward legislative changes to give them power of sanction in, in that instance. But again it's it's kind of piecemeal stuff, you know. And like I did an interview with Sherry Perot, the the outgo the former now former head of ethics and lobbying at the at SIPO. Uh, she left her post after I think six or seven years mm. earlier this year. And she said that like politicians need to think of ethics disclosures as kind of a, a rolling thing, a constant thing. And this yeah. is exactly what Robert mm. Troy didn't do because he said, I thought this was just one date in the year, yeah. 31st of December, where I declare what I, what I, what are my, what I own at that like point th- in time. Th- that's, that's so naive, this idea that you only have to disclose what you yeah. have as a snapshot. Th- that, that's why people who are more cynically minded will think that, well, something's fishy here. He's like yeah. actively trying to cover something up because it's such a naive interpretation of the rules. Well, look, it is, it, we are to believe that it is his honestly held interpretation of the of the of the laws, but it certainly is is naive, and it certainly isn't keep in keeping with the spirit of of ethics in public life and ethics in public office, which should be a constant thing mm. that politicians are thinking about all the time, you know. And it should be something where politicians should just, as a matter of course, declare you know who what their business interests are, what their mm. property interests are, so that the public knows, so that the, when they get up in the door and they speak on these matters the public know uh, what it is, uh, you know, what their interests are uh, and they're all out in the open and fully declared. That's what being a public life is about. Yeah, it just goes back to kind of the archaic system that we currently have where you literally fill in a a physical form Mm. every year and send it in and that's okay. You know, why can't we develop an online register that you could update weekly, monthly, Mm. daily, whatever the case be and you could go on and, and as a member of the public openly yeah, see exactly, what yeah. a TD or senator uh, what interests they may have on a given day like if you look in the UK for example which just has a, a plethora of ethics and scandals <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe we shouldn't be up no 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 but if you look at that MPs have to declare yeah they turn a lot of things up because MPs have to declare any outside income that they get whether it's they give a speech or they have property interests or they have second jobs or whatever it's all declared the amounts they earn all of this stuff and now frequently there are MPs who appear to be uh, straying outside the rules or doing things that are ethically questionable. The point is that we know about it. Mm. Yeah. A um, few texts coming in on this. Uh, one person says, Robert Troy never forgot to claim all of his expenses, did he? Which is, um, I'm sure, a, a widespread uh, perception out there. Someone else says that Robert Troy is in charge of serious matters of state as a junior minister for employment and enterprise, yet he does not have the most basic understanding of the basic SIPO rules. Um, on that note, actually, just one, one thought that just crossed my mind, Elaine, when you were talking about this idea of being a kind of a live register. You're only required, you, you only make the disclosure 
every year I think every January and you're supposed to outline the assets that you had mm-hmm. the previous year so in a funny way if you had bought and sold a house you would be disclosing your interest in the house long after you'd sold it anyway which is maybe what gives rise to the stupidity of only having to make a disclosure once a year anyway Yeah and that's the argument that Robert Troy was making claiming that he no longer held the asset so didn't realise he had to declare it because as he said mm. himself he had both bought and sold the house yeah. in the same calendar year so he didn't think it yeah. had to appear on the declaration but as you said if you had this rolling yeah. online system that asset would appear and then be taken off again when it was disposed of. He's the Minister of State for Company Regulation and in one instance he didn't declare his directorship of a company Mm -hmm. in 2021 when he was the Minister of State for Company Regulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite a few people who are aggrieved about his status as, as status as a landlord as well. One person says, does the Robert Troy situation not just point towards the fact that there are too many TDs that are landlords? Landlords during a housing crisis where being a landlord is financially beneficial. Why would government TDs want to solve the housing crisis? Suggests that one person. And someone else says the Robert Troy situation is infuriating because myself and my husband are paying high rent and we can't save fast enough for a deposit to keep up with rising house prices. Meanwhile, an elected representative is completely taking advantage of the housing crisis, is their perception. Um, it is just worth, again, just fleshing out just to go back to that point if if Robert Troy had been in full keeping with uh, all of his obligations he would not have been required to disclose that he bought and sold a house until months after he'd already gotten rid of it so if this is supposed to be a live indication of what a politician's interests are and what they might be representing you, you wouldn't have known about his house, even mm-hmm. if, he, if he did everything right. You wouldn't have known that he'd had it yeah. until months after he'd sold it. I mean, the other thing... That's that seems in, like a huge failing. Yeah, and, and the other thing about his statement, which is interesting, is that he says that in the interest of full transparency, he was disclosing, amongst other things, two rental accommodation scheme contracts with Westmeath County Council. It was his understanding that he didn't have to disclose those, mm. but that he was doing so anyway. I mean, I don't see how he wouldn't have had to have disclosed yeah. those because they are a service, a contract that he has with, with a public body in which he presumably is receiving income and you would have to presume and think that it was income above the threshold of 6,500 euro. So again, you know, I've been and other journalists have been asking questions about this the last few days and, and even more fair play to her seems to have yeah. got a line out of them today. Um, but he's been ignoring all other requests for information mm-hmm. about, um, uh, you know, in the interest of full transparency, as he says, he doesn't appear to be to want to be as transparent um, as, as he claims that he wants to be. It does all go back as well, I think, to the, the main thing here of the, the lack of enforceability yeah. mm. um, and the lack of power that SIPO has. And even if you look at some of the declarations, um, they can be quite vague. You know, Mm. uh, you might see a property on a certain um, street, but the full address might not be given. um, Mm. And whether that's a requirement or not, again, the, the rules... Are, are slightly yeah. grey in relation to this. Yeah, I know. There's like some some other TDs because there. Are, Robert Troy, by the way, is, is far from the only TD who's had to make belated additions to his register of members' interest. But even going through them yesterday for a piece I was doing for TV, um, some TDs will include the air code or the folio number of a parcel of land, so you can see exactly how much land they're talking about. Others will just say, "Oh, it's farmland in this town." Exactly. And you have no idea how much or how little it is. Uh, for example, in 2014, when he was the Minister for Jobs, Enterprise and Innovation, uh, Richard Bruton had to go back and amend his annual disclosure because he hadn't included some farmland in League Slip, but he didn't say how much there were. Um, Mark Daly, who's now currently the Cahirlick of the Shannad, uh, had to go back and retroactively include a house that he has in Dublin in 2019. He hadn't included that. Charlie Flanagan, who went on to be in Cabinet, was Chairperson of Fine Gael in 2012 when he didn't include an apartment that he had in Dublin that had to be included belatedly. Danny Healy Ray had to amend his disclosures twice because in 2017 he didn't include 38 acres of agricultural land that he owns in Kilgarvan 
And because in 2016, in his original disclosure, he didn't include his incomes from being a publican, a farmer or running a bus hire company, Michael Healy Ray did disclose his ownership uh, of the filling station in Kilgarvan that people might know that he's connected with, but he didn't include his directorship of it. That had to be included in 2019. Green Party TD Brian Ledden has a house in Limerick. He's a landlord in the North Circular Road. He didn't include that in his first disclosure in 2020. Richard O'Donoghue did disclose that it's 1.02 hectares of agricultural land that he left off the register in 2020 and had to go back and add because he cuts hay on that every year. Uh, and Junior Minister Oshin Smith, another Minister of State, didn't include his ownership or directorship of uh, a private company, albeit one which was dormant and never traded, uh, in 2020. And when you have such a litany like that, uh, Elaine, of, of assets and interests which are not disclosed, it's kind of easy to imagine how a culture emerges where mm. TDs don't think it's the end of the world when they accidentally leave something off because there's literally no punishment. Well, it, it, it's clear from that long list that you just mentioned there, Gavin, that this obligation doesn't really seem to be taken seriously or, or cer- certainly if you're kind of forgetting to add assets uh, on a yearly basis, are you really taking the time that's required to fill out the form correctly? Mm. And they, by the way, are only uh, some of the present members of the Oireachtas have had to do it. I didn't even include the likes of uh, former Health Minister James Riley, who, while he was Health Minister, albeit this being held in blind trust, uh, didn't include his 25% stake in a nursing home in Carrick and Shore, something which could have materially been influenced by his own actions as, as Minister for um, Minister for Health at the time. Um, final word to you on this, Hugh, because we do need to, to wrap up and, and let you guys go. Um, how likely is it, if there is now a formal call from Michael McGrath for there to be submissions for an overhaul of ethics rules, um, is he likely to be taking this forward now or more likely now that Robert Troy has drawn attention to the deficiencies? Oh, I think so, yeah. I mean, Michael McGrath, I think, said last week that this is something that, that would um, take shape in the next number of weeks and he'd be bringing proposals to government. But I also don't think it's over for Robert Troy. I mean, you know, bear in mind, um, uh, you know, there is calls today in, in my own paper for him to account for this in the Dáil when it returns in September. Um, the Fianna Fáil thinking is ironically taking place in Mullingar in his own constituency. I can't <laughs> yeah. imagine that he's, he's not going then, to yeah. show up to that. And certainly the likes of Elaine and myself will have a lot more questions for Minister Troy in the coming weeks. Um, so I, I think he's not out of the gap just yet. Uh, Hugh O'Connell and Elaine Lachlan, thank you both very much for joining us through the Sunday papers. We'll be joined by the Minister for State Europe for European Affairs, Thomas Byrne, about the Tory leadership and indeed about Robert Troy and other matters when we're back after this. On the record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PWC. Sunday morning at 11. On News Talk.